Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everybody. We are jumping back into 2 Samuel, and I'll remind our listeners that we are in 2 Samuel, but Samuel is one literary work that was divided into two halves because of scroll length when the Septuagint, the Greek edition translation of the Old Testament was created. Samuel was too long to fit on one scroll, and so it was aptly divided um, into First and 2 Samuel, which is a nice clean break there at the death of Saul and Jonathan and the beginning of David's reign. And uh, we spent uh, last week looking, we're talking retrospectively because we're recording this in anticipation of the Sunday where we're going to address 2 Samuel. And we're going to, the plan at this point we're, is to be in 2 Samuel 7, which is a key chapter in the entire Bible for understanding the purposes of God and their fulfillment in our King Jesus. And so we all as Christians ought to be very familiar with 2 Samuel 7 and also how it fits into uh, the overall work of Samuel. And so I thought it would be really helpful if we took this podcast to not so much talk backwards about 2 Samuel 7, the things we talked about on Sunday, because we're looking forward again, because uh, we're away and unable to record at the Exponential Conference with our entire staff. So we're pre-recording this and I'm here joined by Bill Mayer. Hey guys, welcome back. And uh, we're excited to jump into 2 Samuel. What we're going to do is uh, we are going to kind of focus our attention on the epilogue of 2 Samuel, which is chapters 21 through 24. And the final compiler of Samuel, um, there are obviously multiple contributors because Samuel died halfway through the book, even though he came back from the dead for part of it. Uh, Samuel is not the only author of Samuel, although it was his um his works is recorded works that were relied upon for the final compiler. Also, it's clear that the prophet Nathan and the prophet Gad were also contributors. And then there were other books uh, cited in the book, uh, the book of Yasher, Jasher and, and others. And so the compiler, the final compiler, who's putting this literary work together during the period of the divided kingdom, as you'll notice at the end of second Samuel, there's references to Judah and Israel and those references would only have made sense into the divided kingdom that we're going to get into in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which are parallel narratives, by the way. Um, we'll get into that. But um, what I wanted to do was to kind of spend some time talking through the epilogue of Second Samuel because Second Samuel really ends at Second Samuel twenty, and then everything that happens after that is out of chronological order but it is compiled for us in a chiastic structure where it starts with like A, B, C, C, B, A. And so there's a balance as you read between 21 and 24. And so you're gonna see stories that mirror each other and then move toward each other and then move back towards the end of the book. And it, it uh, starts by ending on a high note and ultimately concludes by ending on a low note. A high note being uh, King David is the kind of the apex of Israel's unified history. Um, what's going to happen after King David? Uh, he's a man, not a God, and so he's going to die, and he's a man, not a God, and so he's not perfect, and he's had some issues that have caused problems for Israel. So what's going to happen after David dies? So you're going to get a picture of, hey, there are other mighty men whom God has raised up 
David has led in a way that has empowered people. He has brought a a band of soldiers and leaders around him. And so David was the giant killer of 1 Samuel 17. And now David, weary in war, is the target of his enemies and is being rushed out of the battlefield because we can't lose the king who's going to be the giant killer. But don't worry. Abishai steps up to kill the giant. And so at the conclusion of 2 Samuel in this epilogue, what we're going to get here is tying up of a lot of loose ends. There's going to be some themes that had developed that find resolution. There's going to be uh, kind of two poems, two songs that are composed by David, the psalmist, who wrote a lot of the psalms that we have today. And we're going to get those two in that chiastic structure. And then it's going to kind of end with this judgment of God um, and this famine um, that that, uh, David is going to essentially kind of take a self-protective approach to initially, and then he's going to mediate uh, and and bring the judgment of God away from the people of Israel. And so you're going to get this. He is a man, but he is God's man. He is self-preserving, and yet he is self-sacrificing. And so this is the way that the epilogue ends. So I want to jump through this. And, um, and let me just say, too, I, I, I love the scriptures. I just absolutely enjoy every minute of Bible reading and Bible study. And I am... At this stage of my Christian journey and development and understanding of the scriptures, I still have loads and loads and loads of questions. And I, I'm moving on from Samuel with nothing but a desire to just stop and answer every question that I have and, um, and think through every little nuance and see the balance and see it all fit together. And so um, this pace is great for us because it helps us to get the big picture, but it also should leave you very hungry for more. And that's definitely my experience. So I say that as a little bit of a disclaimer because I don't have all the answers. I have not written a doctoral thesis on First and Second Samuel. Um, a lot of the stuff we're going to see is just very present. The, the author and compiler is putting it out there for us to very clearly perceive it. And then some of it is uh, intuition that you go, wow, what's going on right here? And how does this get picked up on either later in the story? Or how does this connect back to the, to the past and the books we've already read? And so those things are worth evaluating and considering. And we won't be able to do that, but I do want to spend a little bit of time talking through this epilogue. So um, chapter 21 opens with uh, verses 1 to 9, mentioning to us that there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord. Now that is going to be key to us because a number of you now have asked about the activity of David that appears to be priestly. David appears to be crossing some lines between the king role and the priest role. Now, this was a move that got Saul condemned and rejected. Saul sought the Lord instead of waiting for Samuel, and he was condemned for it. David seeks the Lord, and the Lord answers. And so there's been multiple different ways in the book of Samuel where David functions as a king, but also as a priest. And that should evoke some questions. So, for instance... um, David's sons are said to be priests. That's a question. And there's some translation possibilities there that it's not meant to be translated priest, but more like chief advisors or um, elevated or, or that the word over is kind of presumed that the sons are over the priests, that they're kind of like that royal ambassadors over the priest class. And those are totally possible. I don't know that that's, I, I looked at all of that and couldn't see which way was like definitely the answer there. But you'll remember that David was, was um, wearing a priestly garment. David is the one who brought the ark back, making Jerusalem. 
the city and the location where which God would be worshipped. That's where the temple ends up being built. So there's obviously some religious oversight. You remember that when David was on the run, he went to the priest and he ate the showbread, which was only allowed for the priest to eat. Now this becomes um, one of the stories with Jesus where um, Jesus uses this to talk about like when you're breaking the law and the Pharisees are saying, hey, you're breaking the law by doing this thing. And he said, didn't David break, break the law? Isn't, didn't David? And what do they say? And the, the question there is, yeah, he's David. Who do you think you are? And the answer is, uh, the son of David. <laughs> That's the answer. Like, I have the right to do this because of who I am. And so we get this picture of like David is, has, has this um, priestly role, this priestly function that Samuel just writes in and the compiler of Samuel just writes in. He's, he utilizes the Urim and the Thummim to, to determine, to cast lots, to find the answer to his direct questions from God. This is kind of like um, the magic eight ball of the ancient Near East. And so you'd ask a specific question and an answer would come forward. And there could be a no answer answer. And so that's what Saul got stuck with again and again and again. No answer, no answer, no answer, no answer. But there was a priest that was doing this for Saul and not Saul himself. And so we have this idea of developing of a royal priesthood. And so David is a type of royal priest. And so that is, um, that is a theme that you're going to wa- watch through uh, David. Now, this also is going to be hearkened back to in, from Psalm 110 and in the letter to the Hebrews, where we are seeing that Jesus is a high priest forever, but because he's not a Levite, the justification for his high priesthood is that he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was who? The king of Salem, the king of peace. And now we have David, who is the one who establishes the city of peace, Jerusalem. He's the one who has the son of peace, the prince of peace, Solomon. There's all this connection between Melchizedek and David, and then Jesus and David and the high priesthood of Jesus. And so this is a theme that runs through the scriptures. It's very deep, very complex. Uh, definitely worth your time. And a number of you were noticing this, and I just absolutely love that that's something that you were picking up on. So this famine happens. David seeks the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, this is new information to us as the readers of Samuel. So we know that, that Saul did not put the Amalekites to death completely. In fact, he kept Agag, and Samuel had to kill Agag the king. And then there was Amalekites left over. It was all eventually an Amalekite who killed Saul. Remember when the Amalekite came thinking he was doing David a solid by saying, hey, the, Saul's dead. Here's, here's evidence of his death. And I found him almost dead. And he said, drive a sword through me. And I did. And then David had him executed. That man was said to have been an Amalekite. And so Saul failed to do what God said about the Amalekites. But at some point during his kingship, which is not recorded for us until this point, He actually made an effort to eliminate the Gibeonites. Now, if you'll recall from our sermon in Joshua, the Gibeonite deception, I believe this is in Joshua 9, the Gibeonites disguised themselves as travelers from afar in order to make a peace treaty with Joshua and the leaders of Israel so as not to be destroyed by them. They feared the Lord, and so they acted subversely. And it says, uh, maybe chapter 9 and 12 or 14, I can't remember, I don't have it in front of me where it says that um, they they looked at the evidence that that was the case, but they didn't seek the Lord. And they made this this peace treaty. And because of that, the Gibeonites became uh, the slaves, essentially the forced labor of the Israelites. And that then provoked a war, a war of the allies of the Gibeonites, who now feel like, man, if the Gibeonites, who are mighty warriors, are on the side of the Israelites, we have to take care of this thing fast. 
And so that provoked the war in which Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and God answered that and they destroyed the enemies of Israel alongside of the Gibeonites. And so this is this plays into that rash vow motif that we've seen through Judges, that we see through jo- Joshua, and now that's, that's um, playing out in, in um, Samuel as well. So we've seen this with in a couple different ways, um, these vows that have been made, and then you go, man, shouldn't have made that promise. And sometimes that gets undone, and sometimes that, that doesn't. So you get Jephthah, but this ends up happening with Saul and Jonathan. You'll remember that Saul made a vow that no one's going to eat today until we've been, had victory, and Jonathan's not there to hear that. And of course, he finds some honey in the woods, and, and then he's like, I'm going to kill Jonathan because of my word, and all the people talked him out of it. And so you're going, you're seeing this rash vow motif that's playing its way through. Um, and so apparently at some point, Saul, who had failed to fulfill God's specific direction to destroy the Amalekites, took it upon himself to wipe the Gibeonites off the planet. So he, I don't know if he's trying to make good on what he thought should have happened in the past, and he's elevating himself above God, or if he is got some other motive, we're not told. But we are told that he attempted to exterminate the Gibeonites. So... Uh, David calls to the Gibeonites and spoke to them, and it says, Now the Gibeonites were not the sons of Israel, but the remnant of the Amorites. The sons of Israel made a covenant with them. This is referring back to Joshua 9. And Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. So this is apparently like Saul trying to unify the kingdom. This is something he's doing, but we weren't told about this until this point. Verse 3. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How can I make atonement? Pay attention to this word. How can I make the atonement? How can I make this right? that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. So now King David is after a blessing from the Gibeonites. Now this is speaking us back to Genesis 12. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And now that's been inverted in a way because of the failure of Israel. Now David is saying, I'm needing your blessing back on us. How do we make this right so that you can bless us? And the Gibeonites said to him, verse four, we have no concern of silver or gold, with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. Okay, and so David's like, all right, what is it you're going to ask for? I'll do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, the man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, his hometown, the chosen of the Lord. All right, so there's some really important terms that are buried in that sentence. Number one, we are talking about atonement here. And they are, they've already said, it's not with Saul or his house. It's not silver or gold. We're not trying to get in there to have anything other than what we already had. But what we are looking for is for this to be made right, that what Saul did was evil and that atonement would be made through the death of a son. Now, obviously, the death of the son motif Starts all the way back in Genesis with God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and the ram in the thicket. That's going to be played through all the way through in the death of Jesus, God's one and only son, the only begotten son. All of those references throughout the Psalms, the death of the son is what brings atonement. And here the seven sons is a picture of the fullness of that. And so we see the seven spirits, the seven uh, seven spirits of God means the fullness of the spirit of God. The seven lampstands is the fullness of God's church. The seven stars is like all of God's leaders So this is symbolic of this is going to be enough. So seven sons, and we will hang them. And this is a curse. So um, you'll remember from Deuteronomy, um, cursed is anyone who is hung by a tree. And of course, how does the son of God die? But by being crucified, essentially hung from a cross of wood. 
And this is supposed to happen before the Lord. So this is religious in nature. This is with God involved. This is not vengeance. This is not, we, we, we are deciding for ourselves. We are saying this is the cause. God has revealed this is the cause of the famine. For years this has been going on. And this is going to happen in the Lord's sight. And it's going to happen in Gibeah of Saul to recognize that he was the, the, he was the source of this. And he was the chosen one of the Lord. So the king, David, says, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord, which was between them. And so Jonathan and David had a special relationship. Jonathan and David had shown his steadfast love to Jonathan and vice versa. And they had this covenant between the two of them. As a result of that, David did not exterminate all of the sons of Saul and of David. Instead, he brought Mephibosheth into his home and he ate at his table all the days of his life. And so this kindness to Mephibosheth protected him from being one of those seven. And so the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, Armoni, and Meshibapheth, who she had borne to Saul, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of uh, Barzillai, the Meholethite. So we got two sons by his concubine and five grandsons by his daughter Merab. These he gave into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together and they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, um, the the Gibeonites, they deceived to come into this covenant. And it's bringing us into this picture of deception and covenant. And this happens through Jacob, who deceived uh, his father into a covenant, into a blessing. There's this motif of deception and covenant and the role of covenant and how God perceives this. And so we're brought into this from the divine perspective that there is judgment upon Israel, not because of what David had done, but a lingering effect of what Saul had done that nobody even knew about. And so David, like a priest, seeks the Lord for the purpose of the the cause of this and then seeks to make it right, seeks to make an atonement. And so the death of the son, the sevenfold death of son of the one who is guilty. And there's a contrast there, obviously, between a guiltless son of God who makes atonement for all of us that that his blood is the only thing valuable enough to be able to uh, propitiate our sins. And so there's a type of propitiation that's happening here. And there's a cursing. There's a picture of cursing and blessing that happens through the type of death that they die. Um, and this is like a really important kind of section for us. And there's a lot of like gospel connection that's going on here. Um, a picture here is developing of, okay, the nature of Saul's failure the nature of the oath of these people, the Gibeonites, who presumably had been kept their end of the bargain over over the centuries, and they had continued to be the servants of the Israelites. And so they had been done wrong by God's chosen one, the king, and now this is being made right through this act of propitiation in which David is now functioning in kind of this priest-king kind of a way. And so um, this is this is all happening, too, in this area of Gibeah, which is in those closing chapters of Judges, where this great civil war takes place that almost destroys the tribe of Benjamin and great evil was taking place in this time. And you'll remember it was at um, the same place, uh, Jabesh Gilead, which was the location of those who didn't show up for the war, whose virgin daughters were taken and given to the Benjaminites so that they would have wives. And there was still 200 men who didn't have wives. And so they were given a green light to bypass their vow by letting them snatch women who were dancing at Shiloh in celebration to the Lord. So this got real squirrely at the end of Judges, but this is the location where all this is taking place. And so this is Samuel wrapping up the loose ends of 
the um, negative side effects of a proud, self-centered, evil king in Saul, unbelieving, taking things upon himself that weren't his to, to take on, not consulting the Lord. And David, who becomes this intermediary to make things right, and there is death as a result. Now, a lot of this death, for us especially, man, it just becomes nauseating. It becomes really hard for us to go, man, does anybody, do people still have to keep dying for everything? And is this really right that, you know, these seven men are pulled out and hung because of the, the guilt of their, of their father, grandfather? Is this like a good thing or a bad thing? And ultimately, God is moving in history in order to bring about life and not death. He intended for us to dwell with him in the garden, to eat from the tree of life, to walk in his presence. It is the distrust and disobedience of sin that brings about death in our bodies and in the world, the curse that we are under as a result of that. And there's movement away from God for everyone who is under this curse of death. And all of this movement of God in the Old Testament is how God is intervening and building for himself a conduit by which he will bring into the world a sinless, spotless, sacrificial lamb, a son of God, a righteous, spotless one whose blood has power to atone for sins. And so, yes, the death is a necessary and ugly part of this Old Testament, but it is focused in on and leading up to and drawing our attention to the one death, the death of Christ that is effective for the salvation of all, the atonement of all sin, the propitiation between God and man that we can be cleansed and brought near to God. And this is what ends death. I mean, this is, I mean, there's still, there is still a justification for um, the death of those who take the lives of others and capital punishment, and the role of the government and the state and lethal force and all those things in this age. But all of that is coming to an end because of the death of the Messiah, the fullness of God's son, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ. And that is where these stories are directing our attention. And they're closing up loose ends and they're demonstrating for us um, and a unique role of David um, as king and priest. And so this whole section ends when in verse 14, uh, it's after this. Let me see if I can find it. I had it right in front of me and got past it. This is where um, David is going to pray. He is going to seek God. And uh, the wording of it is is interesting because it says that... Uh, let me see. I wanted to read it word for word. We had it up earlier, Bill. Where did I ever put it? There it is. Uh, verse 14. After that, God was moved by entreaty for the land in this translation. And so this uh, story ends with a... And then God was essentially able to be moved to eliminate this famine because of the prayers of David over the land. And so it's not that David did what God required and therefore the famine just disappeared consequentially. It's what was an obstacle in God's sight because of Saul's sin it was now made right through this propitiation and the death of sons. And now the people could be prayed for and God would be moved through this priestly intercession. And that's just powerful. Now, if you back up from the end of that, um, there's some more details about the hanging of these men and there's some connections to the Old Testament law, right? So cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. We see that in Deuteronomy. And then we're told that we should not allow bodies to be hung overnight, that they should be taken down. And then we're also told at the end of Deuteronomy that one of the judgments of God for unfaithfulness that was going to come upon his people is that their bodies would lay uncovered and be picked over by the birds of the air and by the beasts of the field at night, and there would be no one to um, scare them off. 
And so in the story, uh, Rizpah, the concubine of Saul, whose two sons had been put to death by the, by the Gibeonites, um, the bodies were not removed, as it seemed they should have been from Deuteronomy 21. And so she ends up um, staying by them. She lays down a blanket and she stays by these dead bodies and she rushes, she keeps the birds from picking at them and she keeps the wild animals from eating them until the rains fall. And at this point, David uh, recognizes that they need a proper burial. And so he goes to Jabesh Gilead and he collects the bones of Saul and Jonathan and the, the seven sons slash grandsons of Saul and gives them a proper burial at the grave of Saul's father, Kish. And so there's a lot of blessing and curse being overturned here. Um, the very things that God said would happen are un- unhappen, and the things that have happened that shouldn't happen are made right. And so there's, a, there's an atonement piece that's happening here, and what's put on display here is the, the, um, the kind of mediation and the intercession of uh, Rizpah here, the mother, the concubine, the mother of these two, and also of David. And I think that is worth pointing out. And that brings you to the second section of 21, where we end up with, um, again, these are not in chronological order. These are tying up themes in 2 Samuel, where you get more wars with the Philistines uh, and more giants. Okay, So this is should be taking your attention back to 1 Samuel 17, when David slays Goliath. And there's a contrast there between Saul, the mighty warrior king, head taller than everybody else, who's afraid of the Philistines and they're at this stalemate and they're all listening daily to the, the tirades and insults of Goliath of Gath. And so David shows up as a servant boy and he overhears this and does something about it and with five smooth stones in his pouch uh, takes down Goliath with one rock and then cuts off his head and keeps the sword. Man, following the sword of Goliath through Samuel has been fun too. If you haven't had a chance to check that out, watch what happens with uh with Goliath's sword, but we don't have time for that. Uh, anyway, you, you get to this question of, okay, David is uh, nearing the end of his life, and we get this story about how the Philistines are again at war with Israel. David goes down with the servants with him, and they fight against the Philistines, and it says, and David became weary. And so you're getting, oh, man, David's getting old and worn out. He can't keep up. And then in verse 16, it says, um, then Ishbi Benob, who, who, was one, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight was girded with a new sword. So he's got a new sword and he wants the first blood on that sword to be David's. And so he is sharking for David. And so um, this he's after David specifically. And verse 17 says, But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. So they're like, listen, David's our king, but he's got to be the ruler as long as he can possibly be alive. And so it's too dangerous for him to come in. They're targeting him. So we're going to go out there and we're going to stand up for you. And in fact, Abishai did that, striking down the giant. So the question here is, now that David's aging, who's going to be the giant killer? And are we going to lose the lamp of Israel over David's death and about his inability? And no, the answer is no. David has a bunch of faithful and mighty men who are capable of giant slaying also. And so the next section um, follows up um, in verse 18. Now it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushethite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. So now we got another giant. Uh, there was war with the Philistines against Gob and Elhanan, the son of Jair Oregim, that's fun to say. The Bethlehemite, so this is a relative of, of David, killed 
Goliath the Gittite, same name, different Goliath, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. There was war at Gath again, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also had been born to the giant. When he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So you see that obvious literary connection between David and his servants. And you'll be reminded that when David decided to go attack Goliath, how many stones did he bring? Five. How many did he use? One. How many were left over? Four. And then you get to the end of 2 Samuel, and how many giants are slayed? Four. And so you got this... The kingdom of Israel is secure and they're giant slaying. And this brings you all the way back to that whole motif of the Nephilim and the Rephaim and the mighty men of renown. And they were in the land and they were in the land after that. And this melding of, of, of um, partially divine and human. And this is where these giants came from. And it's this unholy mixture. And we're supposed to be distinct. And the, the sword of God through his people is supposed to eliminate these people. And that's, this is happening. So Samuel ends with this kind of good news that... Um, the purposes of God are going to continue, that the giants are not going to prevail. Um, you'll remember in Numbers 13, too, when the, the spies went into the land, and what would they say? They're giants there, and we seem like grasshoppers to them. And so this is a picture of like, nope, we are conquering. We, this is our land, and we are fulfilling the purposes of God. And it's not now that David is elderly, uh, we're going to protect him, but it's not only him that we're looking to. And so you're getting this kind of continuation of um, of leadership. So that's like a ending second Samuel on a high note at that, at that direction. And so, um, this kind of gives way, um, to the next section, which are a couple songs of David, where he gives great honor and glory to God and what his purposes are, um, and how God's been faithful to him, that, that Adonai is my rock and my fortress, Yahweh, the Lord, um, deliverer. I mean, he gives credit to God. And this is like a picture of David, not at the end of his life, taking the credit for all of the things that have happened, but he continues to connect his ability with God's provision and his stability with God's faithfulness. And so it's beautiful song, long, beautiful song. And then there's connections to second Samuel seven, um, all the way through there, especially at the end, uh, where there's this forward look to God's Messiah King in verse 51 of chapter 22. He is a tower of salvation for his king. He displays grace to his anointed. That's the word for Christ, Messiah. To David his and his descendants forever. And that's that forever language of 2 Samuel 7. And so David's got this forward-looking uh, picture of the faithfulness and power of God. And then you get this human element of the continuation of those who follow after David. And then that gives way in chapter 23 with this kind of chiastic structure from David's song to David's last words. So you get the speech of David. Um, who was, you know, the anointed one of God, the singer, and how the spirit of God spoke through him. And this is a conversation we were having kind of before the recording of the podcast. Okay, we have this, this flattening of the role of king and priest, and they've been distinct to this point. So we started with God developing a priest class that was, that was chosen starting with Aaron and his sons and through the tribe of Levi, but through the family of Aaron and was supposed to go generation by generation by generation. And the Levites were meant to be the temple workers and God was supposed to be the king. And so you have a priest class who is playing a special role. And then you have a leader, uh, a prophet, who is Moses in the, in the beginning iteration. And so you have prophet, priest, king, and God is meant to be their king. And when the Israelites did not follow God as king, 
the priests went awry. The Levites, you end up with a Levite taking a concubine and all this evil stuff happening that looks like Sodom and Gomorrah and Judges. And then the, pro- the prophetic voice goes out and there's opposition to what God is saying. And so Deborah prophesies and Barak says, no, 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 I'm not going unless you go with me and putting her in this God role. And that she's saying, well, that that's going to bring a curse on you. And the battle is not going to be given to you, but the honor is going to be given to a woman. And there's this, this, this corruption of these roles, a confusion of these roles. Samuel is doing something to put these back together. And so he is, he is showing that God is going to give the Israelites, the king that they asked for, the king they deserve in Saul. And he's going to reflect the the brokenness of humanity, the self-preserving, self-centeredness of humanity and the way that power corrupts. And that's who Saul ends up becoming. And that gets made right in every conceivable way in the epilogue of 2 Samuel through this um, intercession of the Gibeonites and the sacrifice of these sons. But you're also going to see that in the purposes of God, Saul was overcome as the king of Israel by the spirit of God and in multiple ways prophesied and shows himself at least in the vein of the role of prophet, not necessarily like the official prophet of Israel, but prophesying as king. And you get this refrain in Samuel where the people say, is Saul even among the prophets? And this happens twice. Once at the inauguration, the outset of his anointing, which is supposed to be the sign from God, and then once where he's intending to kill David and the spirit of God comes upon him and he is unable to do anything but actually prophesy. And so God uses his spirit to stop Saul from killing David. And so you get like a contrast between the power of God at work in Saul in his humility and the beginning of his kingship and then the power of God to overwhelm him and overtake him. And he ends that chapter prophesying naked face down in the dirt. So that's a humbling position right there, isn't it? So here God's humbling him. But Saul is condemned for offering a sacrifice and seeking the Lord without Samuel. And so he is not allowed to function in this priestly role. And yet we see David in so many ways functioning in a priestly role without opposition. He's interceding. He's seeking the Lord. He's using the ephod. He is his, uh, I believe it's chapter 8, 2 Samuel 8, 18, where it talks about his sons being priests. And we kind of took that apart a little bit. There's some options there where that word priest should be translated differently, and some translations do have that as like chief advisors or chief ministers. It's possible that they were over the priests. There's some places where someone is over another group of people, and that word over is missing, and it's in, it's implied. That's a possibility. Or it's a possibility that David's sons had seen something. There was this, this expectation that there was a priestly role that David played. Now, he didn't, he didn't do the, the temple work. That didn't happen. But he did bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. He did seek the Lord. He did offer peace offerings. um, And he did hear from God and did pray on behalf of the people. So there's some priestly stuff that's going on there. And it's possible that that was uh, accepted by the people. And then therefore his sons were seen as a sort of priest class. So don't know that for sure, but that is definitely implied. And if you notice that, that is is part of that. And so this is uh, a picture of um, David's kind of final words. And he's recognizing God's going to do a thing and it's going to go on beyond me. The readers of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are looking and going, the giants are still being slayed. The purposes of God are continuing. And then you're going to get um, the second half of chapter 23, where we get the telling of David's mighty men. And this is really powerful because it shows the contrast of David's leadership to Saul's leadership in the way that he empowered and, and uh, had loyalty from others. And so you're going to get this like picture of, man, Saul 
and ended up in a demise with his son by his side, didn't have the protection like David did, wasn't stuck up for, didn't have people slaying giants on his behalf, hadn't had this giant group of mighty men. And so the second half of chapter 23 just recounts all of the stories of who these mighty men were and what they had accomplished and uh, stories about their faithful, loyal love for David and the strength of their might and their their valiance and their power. It's just an g- awesome chapter, but it ends with this stinging exclamation point when the last of the 37 who are mentioned there is Uriah the Hittite. Of course, Uriah, the one who David treacherously murdered and stole his wife Bathsheba. And so there's this this punctuation of, man, yes, the purposes of, God's continue, of God continues. There are other mighty men, valiant men, And so we have men to look to, and yet we're reminded, even right here at the conclusion of this book, that uh, of David's great sin, and that should sting a little. And you may have felt that when you read that last name put there at the end on purpose. And then 2 Samuel ends in chapter 24, where the anger of the Lord uh, blazes against Israel, and he moved David to act against them by saying, go and take a census. And so here's, here's God working conversely with his own purposes in David's disobedience to take a census. And this is um, confusing to Joab, who tries to stand up and say, hey, king, like, hey, whatever you want, I want everything to flourish under your leadership, but do we really need to do this? And then he makes him carry it out. He can't be persuaded. And for nine months and 20 days, they take a census and they come back with the number of all the fighting men. And here again, you're getting that fighting men of Israel and the fighting men of Judah, which would have been delineations only under a divided kingdom, which is showing you when this book was finished. And uh, the picture here is, is David now uh, repenting of this evil thing. He's, he's heart struck. Again, we get that, that theme of the heart that's running through Samuel. And he's going in his conscience, this is wrong. I shouldn't have done this. And so he has this interaction um, uh, with the prophet where he gets kind of to pick what his punishment is going to be. And do you want to, and he gets the choice of these three punishments. And um, he, David in his godwardness decides I'd rather I'd rather be put in God's hands than my enemy's hands. And so he's thinking, I'm going to just let God do what God does. And so God sends this plague, 70,000 men are killed. And as the angel of the Lord who's bringing this plague gets to the city of Jerusalem and David's observing the death. I mean, he's like the wave of it is moving towards him and he's crying out and, and interceding. And then at this point, he's like, put it all on me. Just put it on me. And this is where... Um, God relents, and then he makes a sacrifice, and the the, the book ends with David um, making a sacrifice to the Lord on the threshing floor and um, buying the field and saying, um, I'm not going to make an offer to, offering to the Lord that doesn't cost me anything. And this is picture of sacrifice, of like, uh, I'm going to own this. I'm going to be the one to bear the burden of it. I'm going to pay for this. It's going to come at cost to me. And it starts to encapsulate that. Uh, intercession of David, that priestly mediation of David, and of taking the guilt upon himself. Now, it was his guilt in this instance, not other people's guilt. But again, it's it's showing that sh- that uh, that shift of God's person, and we saw that in Moses a lot. We saw Moses standing up and getting in between God and the judgment of the people, and and we see that in Paul. Paul says in Romans nine that I I would be blotted out of the book of life if I, you know, for my brother's sake, like have so much love for the Israelites that if it was a choice between me and them, I would I would give up eternal life for their for their well being. So this is an, this is a Christ like impulse. And I want to point this out because it actually is really rare in the Old Testament, especially 
as we look to the law where justice is, is highlighted for us with phrases like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And in Israel's history throughout the Talmud and the Mishnah and the way that the law was understood for fairness, this came about that really developed this kind of fair cycle understanding in the first century of you get what you deserve and you interpret what's happening to you as God giving you what you deserve. And it, there's not a, it's really a Christ likeness that lends itself to self-sacrifice of praying for one's enemies. Of, and this is something you saw in David that was unique among Israel's leaders and historically he was the one who grieved and lamented the death of Saul and Jonathan, his enemies, who tried to kill him. He was the one who grieved the death of his son Absalom, who who rejected him and sought to take his kingdom from his hand and kill him in the open field. Here, here is a man who has uh, com- the p- compassion of God, the love of God, the loyal love of God, and he emotes that in every single way. And here at the end of his life, recognizing his own guilt, seeks to get in the way of the judgment of God against his people. And this is like a, a typified Christ. And so I, I love that Samuel ends in chapter 24 with this picture. And so it starts in this kind of chiastic structure in 21 with David fulfilling this priestly role as he makes right Saul's mistake over the Gibeonites and the death of the son. And then it ends with him as the king, the priest king, getting in the way of the wrath of God for this evil and and bringing it on himself and then making an offering to the Lord, which the Lord accepts. And so this is as forward-looking as we're going to get in Samuel, but obviously it gets so much more clear as we encounter um, the Messianic texts of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and, and others. And then you get into the Gospels where this becomes explicitly clear through the Gospel writers. They want you to make this connection that Jesus is the son of David, that Jesus is the forever king of Second Samuel 7, that, that Jesus is the one who mediates a better covenant in Hebrews. And the New Testament fills all of these things out and connects them to who Jesus is, that there is uh, one son who is the fullness of God's son, who is the righteous one who dies in our place and who makes all things right, who brings us back into right relationship, who establishes a covenant that's unbreakable. He's the king and he's the priest and he's the prophet and he's all of those roles. And and in him, we are all under shepherds and leaders and and we look to him. And so we are supposed to live like him and we're supposed to be giving our lives away and praying for those who persecute us and loving our enemies and and uh, going the extra mile and turning the other cheek. And these are all the things that David in an imperfect way really personified that pleased God. He was the man after God's own heart. Jesus is the perfect um, person who's just this way all the time and taught us to do the same. And he is the one who cleanses us through his own atoning sacrifice and fills us with his spirit so that by his spirit, we may live lives that need no law, that we would be bearing the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are the things that the kingdom of heaven is built upon. This is what the Sermon on the Mount was all about. This is where the blessing of God falls, not in us like Saul fighting to maintain control and stay on top, but instead being willing to entrust ourselves to God and suffer on, on for, the, for the sake of those, even our enemies. And this is where the blessing of God lies. So this is the call of the Christian. There's obviously a lot of really challenging and difficult things that we see, all of the death and all of the sacrifice, all of the bloodshed. These fulfilled the ultimate purpose of God in re- revealing how he would get in the way of that for us and not how we would experience that for ourselves. And I just thank God that we are existing in a time when our mission is not to go exterminate people group, but instead to bring a message of life and hope, of good news, of great joy that's for all people. And that's really where... Second Samuel brings me and um, where all these things kind of tied together. There's an unending stream of motifs and themes that we could follow. And 
I look forward to my next read through first and second Samuel. I definitely don't feel like I've tapped it out, but in the parts that we've got to study together and deep dive into, uh, it's just been a joy to be able to see Jesus and to see two paths that are laid out for us through faith. And so I want to live my life in um, constant subjection to the purposes of God in the secret place and in, in all relationships in whatever time period God allows. And I want to let him be the one who raises me up to whatever place that he wants me to be. And so I invite you to do the same. So that's the message of First and Second Samuel. Thank you guys so much for following along. We're going to jump into the First Kings next and uh, watch the kingdom fall apart in division and distress and see a whole bunch of more terrible things happen. And it's going to be great. But ultimately, we're going to see how God prevails through it and intervenes in order to bring good things for his people and ultimately for the world. So stick with us. Look forward to seeing you next time. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.